0: My name's Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for the Riding of Durham. And this is a brand new podcast that I'm hosting that will explore the people, places and events in our past and present that make the Durham region, its people, the communities, a very special part of the Canadian story. So this is our first podcast in this series. It's August 12th, 2016 and we're sitting in idyllic Port Perry on a warm sunny day Roasting. Roasting (laughs) roasting in the Port Perry library overlooking the tranquil waters of of Lake Skugog. Which is where we should be. We should be on the lakeside is where we should be, uh, but we're not. But I'm fortunate to have noted Canadian historian, Ted Barris, here for our first episode. Welcome, Ted. It's a pleasure, Aaron. I, we, you and I have uh, so many wonderful
1: things in common, despite our some political differences. Whenever you and I talk history, it's a delight to treat, and, and um, I'm so thrilled you're doing this. Uh, we'll talk some more about the concept and where it can go, but this is so imaginative, such a great idea, and um, there are so many people in our communities some of whom are gone and we'll Mm -hmm. talk about, but others who are alive today that give these kinds of uh, chances to
0: talk about history lots of life
1: because there's still lots of
0: witnesses. Absolutely, and with the podcast tool, uh, we're hoping people can listen to this on their own time while they're walking their dog, while they're driving to work. We're also hoping down the road that teachers can use it, play it in their class to tell some of these stories and to share some of the knowledge. and um, I foresee that you may be a regular contributor to Durham past and present. And tell me a little bit, Ted, about your own uh, personal interests in history, some of the books you've written uh, which, which sort of color why we're here today. Well, I've had a wonderful
1: opportunity to write for now 40 years professionally. Uh, more than that and uh, have had uh, the chance to have my work published in newspapers and magazines and in book form. I'm working on my 19th book currently and it's dealing with uh, medical personnel from wartime situations going all the way back to the Crimean War and all the way up to Afghanistan. But the books have come from, the newspaper articles, the magazines, have almost always come from sources, living sources, who were witness to these things. I've I've got a reputation as a quote, military historian. I think I'm more a people historian, because I get the chance to talk to people who have seen certain things, a lot of the military, because half the books are the military, but I've done books on rodeo, I've done books on steamboat navigation, I've done books on hockey, And all of them are born in the chance to meet people, sit down and listen to their stories and then thread them together into a readable, fine, finished publication.
0: And you're probably best known um, for your work on Vimy and why that's so important is uh, we're really half a year uh, or so away from marking a century since Vimy Ridge, which was a defining battle for Canada once again, for the families of Canada, the Mm -hmm. people that were impacted, and your book is uh, is uh, still flying off the shelves, and you're telling me there's going to be an update to that book, too. Well, the Victory
1: of Vimy book was published in 07, but the story hasn't changed, essentially, because these are all sources that are now long gone, diaries, letters, manuscripts that were illegal, because the soldiers weren't allowed to write these things down, but they did, fortunately, and took photographs. Um, and yeah, I've been doing a lot of public speaking on Vimy, but my point really is that You're always still able to find things. I thought when I read Pierre Burton's version of Vimy that that was definitive. I idolized Pierre and and I loved his style, raconteur style. But I sensed when I did a little digging that some of the stories had been missed. Uh, For example, the story of the 116th Ontario County Battalion, which we'll talk about more thoroughly in a minute, really was born right in the town where I live, in Uxbridge, and I remember um, probably 15-20 years ago a friend of mine said you want to see part of the 116th story? And I said what do you mean? I said the post office that was there is gone. I said all the men are gone. She said yeah wait a minute, wait till I show you something. She took me down the Brookdale Road which is just a, uh, looks like it's full of acreages and nice estate homes now but buried back in the woods was the area where the 116th had actually done its Uh, fire range testing with their Ross rifles. Mm -hmm. The berms were still in the woods, these little humps that sort of were strung out along at certain distances from the target pits where the steel target frames were still there. We We found them in the woods then. And I was absolutely blown away by the fact that that was still there, buried in the woods. And I could feel the presence of these young men who felt this urge to serve king and empire.
0: Well what a perfect way to segue into our first uh, episode of Durham Past and Present with what you were talking about the 116th, the father of that battalion is uh, a figure that fascinates us both. Uh, it's a figure that has um, um, really been reawakened in the minds uh, uh, of people in Oxbridge in Durham and across Canada, and that's Samuel Simpson Sharp um, from Oxbridge. Born in the, the thriving hamlet of Zephyr uh, in March of 1873 as uh, one of seven children to George Sharp and Marianne Simpson, and six of those children survived to, to adulthood. And and Zephyr was a small town then; it still is now, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the beauty of
1: so many of these places, whether it's the berms of the woods where the shooting range was or Little Zephyr or even Uxbridge and Port Perry. There are elements of our towns that still have that flavor of pre-1900 and just immediately following the Edwardian era leading up to the First World War. Um, you go to Zephyr and there's some little old century home still there. You, the agrarian connection that the town, the, the village has to its surrounding area remains, as is the case with Uxbridge. Um, and then you can, you can probably, I don't know, but you could probably go to the, to the family home still and find Inge- Sharp's family home there. He left uh, Zephyr, uh, went off to school in Toronto, to university, became a lawyer, uh, fell in love with the granddaughter of Joseph Gould, who operated the uh, uh, Mansion House Hotel on the main street in Uxbridge, uh, Mabel, and they were married, Mabel Crosby. Uh, And then, of course, as the town solicitor, he grew into the community's activities, uh, found a calling in serving and ran for office, as you know, and had some extraordinary experiences as an MP, but very much rooted in the town and its day-to-day life, whether it was out in the country, in the farm country, or in the town and its Mm -hmm. administration.
0: And what was interesting, of this small Hamlet, um, parents who raised uh, strong children, um, you know, deep in faith, deep in Goden Country at the time. Um, interestingly, as you said, uh, Sam Sharp went on to be solicitor for Uxbridge, an accomplished lawyer, militia officer which we'll get into and a member of parliament. But ironically, his, his brother William William Henry Sharp also became a member of parliament and later a senator. bit of competition there maybe perhaps yeah, yeah both were elected in 1908. Uh, ironically though, William Sharp left uh, Southern Ontario and went to Manito uh, uh, Manitoba, became a merchant and was elected in uh, the Lisca Riding, the Portugal Prairie area, in 1908, 1911. That was a
1: big, booming period on the prairies for agriculture. Absolutely. Things were really starting to take root as the, the sort of breadbasket of the country.
0: And Winnipeg being sort of a, a gateway for, yeah. for that. And uh, he also, like Sharp, raised a battalion for World War One, the, the 184th Battalion. He didn't see action like Sharp did. And he was a parliamentarian until 1942. He ended up being appointed to the Senate by Borden after a short-lived provincial uh, run and sat uh, until he died in 1942. So it's interesting, this small little town of Uxbridge produced two parliamentarians and certainly we're here to talk a little bit about the one that shares our passion, Sam. And he was, before raising the, the 116th, he was a militia officer in the 34th Regiment uh, and like many pillars of, the so- of society back then, He was either a supporter or an active militia militia officer. And that that was common among a
1: lot of little towns, because they raised them going all the way back to the... the, The colonial period with the British Empire loyalists and then through to the defense of Canada during the Riel rebellions when they were drawing on militia to serve uh, in the quelling of the rebellion in 1885 and then moving closer to the period of the Boer War many of these militias became the foundation of the regiments that served in South Africa and on and on into First World War.
0: Yeah and you mentioned the Ross rifle interest uh, earlier Interestingly, uh, interestingly enough uh, Sir Sam Hughes would have been right next door in the Victoria riding the Lindsay area, and when Sharp wanted to raise a regiment from Ontario County, now the Durham region, but it was Ontario County back then, and Sharp was the Member of Parliament for Ontario North, so the north part of Ontario County, he would have probably gone across the caucus room to the Minister of Militia and said, we need a regiment for Ontario County and that led to the 116. And it's funny you
1: know, um, you and I have been talking about this podcast for a while and in the course of my digging up some old files that I've had, I found a letter that he wrote, and he was pre, this is Sam Sharp, he wrote a really miffed letter to somebody in government. He was complaining about the fact that he had gone to Valcartier during this pre-First World War period when there was a sense that the, the demand was going to be great for men in arms and he went to Valcartier to join as 2IC, second-in-command to an Ontario regiment. Somebody came in, and it might even have been Hughes, and knocked him down a notch and moved in a Quebec officer to take his place. Well, of course, the rivalries between Ontario and Quebec were, as always, pretty uh, fraught with uh, friction. And I sensed that maybe that was the trigger that sparked Sam's decision to underwrite his own battalion, mm-hmm. his own funding, his own leadership, his own uh, essentially equipping of a regiment of his own from this community rather than worrying about the rest of the country and yeah. Ottawa and so on.
0: Yeah, he wanted the ability to, to have that that control and, and to, to lead. And the 116th, which is now uh, the the early uh, early form of what is now the Ontario Regiment, still proudly serving uh, Canada and the Durham region, but all hallmarks of the 116th was sharp, you know, the, the, the four companies, A Company in Uxbridge, B Company in Beaverton, C Company from Whitby, and D Company from Oshawa, we had about uh, 1,100 soldiers that in many cases he personally recruited.
1: And that's the, that's the extraordinary undercurrent to this story. This was a, a, a battalion that was of his community. He went to all these villages and towns, literally from you know, um, A to Z from whatever town we can think of in, in our community that starts with A right to Zephyr. He went looking for these young men and he knew their families. And in a way, I think Aaron this was kind of his downfall. Yeah, this he was, was the so seeds. he was so close to these young men that when they began to die in battle, as they would, and they did in extraordinary numbers, he felt personally responsible for their loss. But initially creating this sort of sweep across the region to bring them in with this fervor and this passion to serve king and empire and off on this great adventure. Um, He was the spokesman, and so he was therefore responsible. Not just because he was the lieutenant colonel, but because he knew each of these men specifically. I I think of one note in particular, uh, not long after they had arrived um, at uh, Vimy and... um, there's one young man whose name I have in here. He's, he was lost. Yeah, their first casualty. Um, Sharp has to write home to the family of Private George Hudges, who was the battalion's signaler, probably a number, number of signalers. but in this case the, the battalion had been billeted in a barn, and he was injured very severely in a shell attack, shelling attack, lost both arms and died, and he had to write home to his parents that this man was lost. And he wrote... Uh, in quotes, a smart and gentlemanly young man. That's the best I suppose you could say mm-hmm. about losing a man so horribly.
0: Well, and we saw the melancholy uh, set in with Sharp later on. And as you said, the, the seeds of his sad demise were really sown in the fact that this was his regiment. They were his boys. And mm-hmm. in many cases, he would have talked to the families, the, the, the spouses, um, before they were going off to war. And what I always found, speaking as, a, as the modern day MP for a time for the same, part of the same geography, somebody who was a lawyer and, and served in the military, um, I was always fascinated by Sharp. He was elected in 1908 as the parliamentarian, he keep, kept practicing law, kept uh, his militia duties. Ironically, and I joke, in 1911 his number one pillar for running was Senate <laughs> reform. A um, hundred years later we're, we're still wondering about Senate reform. and then. One of his unique distinctions, he was the only sitting member of Parliament re-elected in the December 1917 election while he was fighting in France. It's really quite remarkable that he, uh, the people of Ontario North, Oxbridge and, and surrounding area um, sent Sharp back while he was fighting. I think it's a remarkably uh, interesting and little-known footnote. Of it's the chemistry
1: of his connection to the town. You know,
0: mm-hmm. all the things we've been talking about it roots him here and makes him the favorite son Absolutely. in so many ways. So they they deployed, the 116 deployed with Sharp and then saw some tremendous action in places. Baptism like, and fire at Vimy. At Vimy, yeah and Avion. Do you want to speak for a moment on any of that uh, that period for the Battalion for Sharp? They
1: were known as the Baby Battalion. They arrived at Vimy in the fall, I think in December of 1916 and of course about that time something magical is happening with the Canadian Expeditionary Force. All the Canadians are now together for the first time in an operation that is theirs alone to conduct and that is to take the ridge. They had always been farmed out to the French colonial battalions, the British battalions, and then split up, the ump umps they were known. Mm-hmm. But the baby battalion arrives at Vimy just as the entire behind-the-lines area at Vimy is being reconstructed in preparation for the battle. They're in charge of repairing communication wires, the underground wires that were laid behind the lines. And in fact, in on the first day of Vimy, at the end of the battle, they didn't get a chance to fire a shot. And yet at the end, as the battle is ending on the first day, April the 9th, 1917, their men, the, they get the call, the 116th that goes out and st- has to repair lines. And 20, 25 men are killed or wounded in that first day, just repairing wires. Mm-hmm. This is an indication of how horrific the casualties will be uh, for the battalion and the kind of mental strain and stress that
0: uh, Colonel Sharp is going to have to face. And that... And, and that- Leads to what we touched on earlier, uh, where you talked about the first casualty of the 116th. Once we hit Vimy, uh, and there's notes in the Ontario Regiment's history about stirring speeches Sharp gave to, to uh, improve the morale of his troops, but the toll of the losses. I know the, the letter he wrote the widow of uh, Lieutenant Thomas Walton um, was particularly uh, telling and showed how the mental state of Sam Sharp was was breaking down. He had attended Walton's wedding before the 116th deployed, and then he had to write the widow. Um, And you could see where he said he was unsure about being capable of, quote, carrying on because of the loss of so many fine men.
1: And just to put some context into this, you mentioned the numbers, roughly 1,100 men who were literally brought out of the communities into this battalion. By the time they've gone through Vimy, through Avignon, to Passchendaele, which is a slaughter, uh, three months of hell in the in, uh, in approach to Passchendaele, which the Canadians ultimately won, but a horrific price. By this time, the 116th Battalion has been diminished through wounded and lost, missing, killed by close to 90%. Wow. We're down to uh, maybe 160 men of 1,100. Now that's 8 or 900 letters. Yes, missives that Sam Sharp has to write home to the same kinds of people that you've just mentioned in the connection to the man whose wedding he attended. Yeah. And that's got to be that's got to take a toll.
0: Well, and, and we saw that, and that that is what led to why in many ways Sam Sharp uh, outside of the regiment, outside of Durham, he was very little known in the last year of his life, and I use this uh, Example frequently. In the last year of Sharp's time on this earth, he was re-elected to Parliament in abstention in that 1917 election. He led his men and fought at Vimy Ridge, the iconic uh, battle in Canadian history. He received the Distinguished Service Order uh, for his gallant leadership of the 116. But by the time that full year was over, he'd taken his own life. And the mental injury from war, uh, which wasn't well understood then, really took hold of Sharp, and you could see it in the letters. And eventually, he was evacuated from the field and, and sent to the Royal Victoria Hospital. But before in Montreal, in Montreal, and before returning, he sadly left from a window um, alone and in the thoughts of all the many lost, and not being able to return home to to see the families, it must have been a lonely and horrible, horrible time when you couldn't talk about the, the type of injury he suffered.
1: And yet it's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I'm exploring now in this current manuscript about military medical people, I've gone to the records of John McCrae, the famous colonel of the 14th Canadian Field Artillery, I think, and then later the number three Canadian General Hospital overseas, the man who wrote in Flanders Fields, of course, famous for that Uh, incredible poem and the writing he did around it. He notes, because he was a a pathologist, he notes in his medical records the appearance of what he referred to as shell shock. Mm -hmm. This is 1915, Mm -hmm. long before we're talking about post-traumatic stress in contemporary uh, terms. He recognized that men were suffering wounds of a mental capacity that no one seemed to be paying attention to or realizing. Of course, if you were in the bracket of shell shock, you might be executed for cowardice. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Sharp himself, this horrible depression of realizing that all these young men are gone uh, comes back to Royal Montreal, Royal Victoria in Montreal, and steps out of the room, kills himself. Um, not able perhaps to face the reality of going home. And it's interesting because I've also read the records of Lucy Maud Montgomery, her journals, Mm -hmm. in which she also captures that moment. She spotted the sense of melancholy. She knew Mabel, Mm -hmm. uh, his wife, recognized what he was going through, and she reports in her journals his death. It really hit home in this community at
0: all levels, among men and women. That's what's interesting. I've read, uh, courtesy of the Lucy Maud Montgomery Society, parts of the journals, where her first vote, in fact, women's first vote in 1917, uh, was cast for Sam Sharp, even though she joked she was a liberal from Prince Edward Island. She voted for the Conservative because she voted she voted in favor of the war effort. And then sadly, months later, she's alongside Mabel and, and hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of people from, from the countryside to attend his funeral. And because of our attitudes on mental injuries and on suicide in general, while he was mourned deeply in in Uxbridge and Zephyr, he was literally struck from the history books. And um, I I highlight that by saying the the fire that struck Parliament uh, during World War I burnt the Parliament buildings down when they were rebuilt. There was an alcove outside the House of Commons built specifically for a statue to George Baker Um, Another Conservative MP from Brome, Quebec, who died a hundred years ago, just a few months ago, at the Battle of Sanctuary Wood, and he died from a physical wound on the battlefield. While in office still. While in office, uh, even though he'd only served a few years compared to Sharp, who was much more his senior. There's a magnificent, the largest and only single statue to an individual in the Parliament buildings to Baker, and not a word or reference anywhere to Sharp, even though at the top of the Peace Tower? both Baker and Sharp appear in the Book of Remembrance because he was evacuated from the battlefield and died as a result of that mental injury. Sharp was in the Book of Remembrance but never commemorated and not even on the parliamentary history of World War One
1: Until now. Until now.
0: And let's let's talk about that legacy piece. So you've seen uh, how this story galvanized and bring people together in Uxbridge. What do you see as this special legacy with Sam Sharp in in Uxbridge and in the Durham region?
1: Well, because PTSD is now considered an operational injury, it's something that is a legitimate, I mean, Mm -hmm. legitimate if that's the way you want to describe it, wound, um, you and others have recognized uh, that, um, you know, somehow we have to correct that error in our history. We have to replace the missing face of Sharp in that alcove. and So you and I know a wonderful artist here in Port Perry, Tyler Briley, who came together with you. Maybe you better describe this. How well, that wonderful uh, coming together connection came to, to make
0: the correction. Absolutely. We're here in Scugog, not far from the Kent Farndell Gallery. Uh, Kent, uh, a major patron of the arts in Durham, introduced me to Tyler when we were looking for a sculptor to do a relief sculpture of, of Sam Sharp. Tyler is a retired firefighter who's, who's suffered with physical and mental injuries from being a first responder, like, like military first responders can, can be struck by PTSD, and Tyler has done a stunning brass relief, which you've seen, and we unveiled it at a breakfast that bears Sharp's name now in Ottawa, which is in its third, uh, just had its third year, you've attended each, and uh, Romeo Dallaire and I host it, so that it's non-partisan, it brings people together to bring advocates, veterans mental health people, uh, the military and parliamentarians, historians together to talk about mental injuries and to the treatment from them. So what a legacy Sharp has a, a century later. Yeah.
1: And young people. Um, you and I both know an extraordinary teacher in Uxbridge, Tish MacDonald, who yeah. has spent many years kindling the interest among young people not just for dates and battlefields and the big story, but the grassroots story. Um, We have a banner program in Uxbridge where veterans are commemorated on November the 11th with banners all over town. Tish is in part responsible for that. She's leading the trip to Vimy for the 100th. She has previously gets young people uh, through such events as we had earlier in the spring, a big gala transformed uh, Uxford Secondary School into a Vimy museum with uh, trenches and weapons and photographs and storylines and performances in costume, all recreating the story of Vimy through the young people who've learned it, the, the students who are uh, the Tisha students, um, so that by the time they get to Vimy next year they're going to be so uh, enriched with the story it's going to have such a powerful impact on them when they step on that ground and recognize
0: what happened there. Absolutely, Tish, uh, and I had the uh, Tish is inspiring, and I had the honor of attending the gala. One amazing job done by Oxford Secondary, a school sharp attended. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up, I think let's bring it back to how you started this off, Ted. History is about people, and. The story of the person, Sam Sharp, and how he's now touching young people in the Durham region who had no idea who he was a few years ago, and he's now bringing people together. In Ottawa, when I was Veterans Minister, and still to this day, I was talking to veterans about this yesterday in my office, um, how Sharp is helping us talk today about mental injuries from service and break down the stigma so that people can say, today, I'm not isolated like Sharp was a century ago. I can come forward and get help for this injury. Just like a physical injury, we have treatment options there for you. Just make sure you come forward. So what a, what a tremendous legacy that Sharp leaves us, not only here in Durham, but, but for Canada.
1: And when people such as Tish and Tyler and others who have passed the torch to young people to recognize this history, and then they go to places such as Vimy or the Somme or even the battlefields of of Normandy, and they see the tombstones where the epitaphs of 18 and 19 and 20-year-old Canadians are laid bare in front of them, and they recognize, oh my God, that could have been me. And when that moment hits them, we know as adults that our kids
0: and our grandchildren get it. Absolutely. And many of them inherit the same passion, that I know our listeners can hear in your voice. So I can think of no better way to kick off the Durham Past and Present podcast than tapping your passion and your your knowledge, uh, Ted. So thank you very much for joining us and being a part of this. Pleasure. I see, uh, I predict you will be back uh, because this is really going to be a podcast that follows those interesting stories, those people, places and events. And for listeners to this first podcast, you can go to my website, to see some pictures and presentation using some of the, the people and names we talked about today at www.aeronotoolmp.ca and tune in in a couple of weeks for the next Durham Past and Present podcast. If you want the political podcast, because uh, there'll be no politics on this one, um, if you want to hear my political take on things, uh, you can also on that website and on SoundCloud find my Blue Skies political podcast.